Um, we're going to have a look at uh, technology and uh, the moves and changes uh, in the next few years and where we currently are. So please put your hands together for Arthur Goldstuck. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to present uh, to this conference because a lot of you are way ahead of the cutting edge that I've been looking at, but I always hope to surprise you with some fresh insights. Uh, for example, it's unlikely uh, you would visit uh, La Liga in Spain to see what they're doing with artificial intelligence. So I thought I'll start off by sharing that with you. Um, this can get a bit messy. Sorry, bad pun. But La Liga is, in fact, one of the most advanced broadcast partners in the world. This gentleman helps uh, make it so. His name is Joris Evers. He's the uh, chief communications officer of La Liga. And this is him uh, presenting to a small group of us at the Espanol Stadium in Barcelona uh, of the technologies that are being used by La Liga to engage the fan, to enhance the activity of the coach, to enhance the performance of the referee, and most significantly, to enhance the partnership with broadcasters and therefore enhance the experience of uh, viewers at home or listeners uh, on radio. La Liga is probably the most advanced AI-driven sports body in the world, and this is some of the things that it does. The, the artificial intelligence uses a range of inputs from previous events, previous matches, uh, the likely attendance at future matches based on the importance of those matches, traffic patterns, weather patterns, and other events that might be happening in the region at the same time. And they're able to forecast attendance to within a couple of percentage points accuracy. That helps them schedule fixtures to maximize attendance. They're able to track viewer preference, and they can therefore personalize experiences for almost uh, an individual level of a user. But the biggest impact they've made has been in the extent to which they've guided the coaches of La Liga. And until this past season, for the past five years or so, Spain absolutely dominated club football in Europe. Every uh, major European tournament had um, between two and four Spanish clubs in the semi-finals of those tournaments. This year was a freak occurrence. England dominated European football, and I think part of the reason is that uh, English football has uh, caught up to the technology that Spain has been using, because they've been using this technology for a good few years now. The coaches have been sitting on the sidelines with their tablets, tracking exact uh, performance uh, metrics on the field while the game is on and able to make decisions on the fly based on what the data is telling them via artificial intelligence uh, tools. And finally, um, England caught up to that. And then, probably equally significantly, they, uh, it's guiding video-assisted refereeing, which a lot of people think is the end of the referee because you now more and more see the ref consulting the TV screens on the sidelines, watching the recreation of a move from every angle. And it's not just video recreation, it's artificial intelligence using augmented reality and 3D modeling to show what the action looked like from angles that weren't actually filmed. So the question people are asking is, do we need referees? The reality is 
This is making referees better than they've ever been before. And this summed it up. In the last season, La Liga referees were the best paid in the world because they were the most effective referees in the world, enhancing the viewer experience more than any other league in the world in terms of referee performance. So it's a fantastic example of how artificial intelligence combined with an immense amount of data analysis, in fact, enhances the performance of humans rather than replaces uh, the humans. The truth is that technology disruption has always uh, been with us. We complain about technology taking over. But do you remember these things? They're called books, and you bought them in bookstores. There's still a couple uh, of those. They're like museums uh, these days. And these things, um, they were called CDs. Anyone remember them? Um, that guy, you know what his job is? Or what his, his role is? He's an archaeologist. He's digging into uh, the past. But the, the biggest shock wasn't the disappearance of those. The biggest shock was when one of the most successful entertainment companies of the world put these signs up on their windows, when Blockbuster closed down. And Blockbuster is an incredible story to share to understand the disruption that technology brings to any kind of business. This happened to be the entertainment business, but it applies to almost any kind of business. Banking actually needs to pay attention uh, to this business model, and certainly broadcasting is uh, very much in the crosshairs of the kind of disruption that took Blockbuster out. So let me share the case study with you, how Blockbuster started firstly. It actually started because a computer programmer who specialized in databases realized that the experience of video stores was actually not a great experience. His wife wanted to open a video business. They bought a franchise called Video Works, and they simply wanted to customize it to their own colors, which is the colors you see on screen here. And Video Works said, no way. You do it our way or no way. There is absolutely no variation on our stock standard model. And that was one of the most fundamental mistakes that a lot of businesses make today and a lot of radio stations make today. They're so locked into their format that they actually cannot see the future coming to sweep that for, uh, format aside. And that's what's killed a lot of uh, radio stations over the years. Um, so he decided to open his own um, chain called Blockbuster. And he was going to use his understanding of database software to completely change the way they operate. He was planning to change the way one store operates. He didn't realize at that time that he would transform an entire industry. This is how they changed the world. They were able to stock 10,000 videos instead of 1,000, because if you had more than 1,000 in those days with a manual system, there was no way to keep track. He then started franchising the concept and had to open a warehouse to feed the chains. And by 1990, just five years later, they were opening a new store every 24 hours. And that began killing off the mom-and-pop video store that you tend to see, still in South Africa even, um, on, in some of these uh, strip malls, certainly not in the big malls um, anymore. And by 1994, it had become an $8.4 billion business. At least that's what Viacom paid for uh, Blockbuster in 1994. The irony of 1994 is that's the year that the internet went commercial. And of course, uh, no one had any idea what it was going to do to uh, businesses, but they discovered fairly quickly. 
So this is part of the problem with Blockbuster's business model. They depended on fast turnover of titles. When they saw that they couldn't get people to speed up returns, they introduced penalties. And very quickly, that became their primary business model, late return fees. 70% of their revenue was from punishing the customer. It's like telecom or the banks in South Africa. Most of their revenue comes from punishing customers. One of the customers who was punished was a gentleman by the name of Reed Hastings. You might recognize the name because he ran this incredible company called Pure Software. Remember Pure Software? If you do, you lie, because I don't. They were a software bug detection company, but he detected a bug in the system at Blockbuster. He rented Apollo 13 and then forgot where he left the video. The videos were these little boxes with tape on them that you stuck in a machine and then watched it and then returned it to the store. And if you returned it late, they find you. And he was fined $40, which is what it would have cost him to buy the video outright. He was so incensed, he decided there had to be a better way. And he founded a new company. Anyone know what it was called? Netflix. Netflix was founded entirely because the customer was frustrated with the way things were being done and the way he was being treated. It wasn't an instant success, though. Just a couple of years later, Reed Hastings and his co-founder went to Blockbuster cap in hand because they were $50 million in debt. But they had this great model for video rentals over the internet where you could manage databases automatically on the internet. It was still a case of you ordered the video and they would post it to you. And when you finished watching it, you would send it back and you could order the next one. But they very quickly racked up $50 million in debt, but figured Blockbuster would be the ideal partner for their business. And they went to meet with them in the Dallas Renaissance Hotel, where Blockbuster liked to have all the executive meetings. And they said to them, pay us $50 million for our business, that'll get us out of hock, and we'll run your online rental business for you using our systems and models. And they were literally laughed out of the Dallas Renaissance Hotel, which made them quite sad. On the flight back to Silicon Valley, which is where they were based, they realized this is bad news because now, not bad news because they didn't give us the money, because now we're going to have to kick Blockbuster's ass. That's exactly what they said to each other. They changed the model to a subscription model, pay a monthly subscription, and you can have all the videos you can watch. As long as you return the previous one, you can order uh, the next one. Thanks to the US postal system where you have overnight uh, deliveries and drop-offs uh, drop and the like, it was feasible for someone to watch a video almost every second day of the month for a fixed fee. By 2004, they had the world's biggest video rental business by number of subscribers. And that was only when Blockbuster woke up to the need to go online. And look what happened next. I won't say you won't believe what happened next, because you will believe it. That's what happened to Blockbuster versus Netflix from 2004 to 2010. 2010, Blockbuster went bankrupt. Netflix was a $2.2 billion business that Netflix could have had for $50 million. And you won't believe what happened next. From 2010 to 2017, the valuation went up to $65 billion. Today, or should I say yesterday, the market closed on uh, the day before yesterday because yesterday was a public holiday in America. <coughs> Excuse me. At market close, Netflix was worth $166 billion. In other words, 
it grew in value by $100 billion in just two years. So this clearly is one of the great business success stories and one of the great stories of this uh, disruption. People keep talking about the Uber of this and the Uber of that. They should be talking about the Netflix of this and the Netflix of that. So how do you become the Netflix of radio? So I had the great fortune of visiting the Netflix um, labs a couple of months ago and was able to ask Reed Hastings personally. I love showing off because if I don't show off, then people don't believe that I actually met the guy. And I said, what was the secret or what is the secret of your success? And there are a lot of secrets, but the fundamental secret is that it's about a corporate culture. It's about member satisfaction. They don't call them customers, they call them members. You never hear them talk about customers or clients. They're not trying to sell their customers on something. They're trying to engage their members in the content they provide. And they know that a happy member is one that will stay with them and that will recommend them to others. How many of you are on Netflix? It's incredible. They've only been in this country for three years. And it's about a third of this uh, audience. And how many, how many of you have binge-watched on Netflix? Everyone who's on Netflix binge-watches on Netflix. It's an indication of the incredible satisfaction that they're delivering uh, to their members. And the, the last point there is that amazing content with which the world falls in love is, in fact, what keeps you engaged. They're not worried about competition. They should be. Everyone should be worried about competition. But what they understand that Blockbuster never did understand is that when you have strong competitors, it keeps you on your feet. And it forces you to keep improving. Blockbuster's big problem is that they had no competition in their space. They wiped out the competition. And the result is that they didn't have to change. They didn't have to improve until someone came along and woke them up. And then it was too late. It was like when you're snoozing and someone wakes you, and instead of waking up and being bright and breezy, you fall out of your bed. That's what happened to uh, Blockbuster. One of their biggest competitors is HBO. And um, most times CEOs don't name their comp competitors, but Reed Hastings is very happy to name HBO. And he makes the point that HBO, HBO has grown at the same time as Netflix has. Not as strongly, but has grown comfortably in that time. And HBO is the home of the Game of Thrones, which uh, in the past seven years has really boosted them. Game of Thrones is now over, so we're likely to see the beginning of the decline of HBO unless they come up with another smash hit of that level. The, it'll make Reed Hastings sad again if, Blockbuster, uh, if, if, if HBO, same thing, does go out of business because it means that uh, they won't have a great competitor to force them to become even better. Actually, they will. They'll have Amazon, they'll have uh, Disney Plus, and a range of other players who keep pushing them as well. The key question, however, is what about the rapid pace of change of technology? Won't someone else come along and disrupt you thanks to technology? He makes two points. One is that not everything is perfect. They have to keep improving, and that's the message to any business. You have to constantly improve, never be complacent. But more important, improving technology enables them to keep improving. The faster, better 
that technology gets, the faster, better, and more wonderful Netflix gets. So what he's really saying is leverage rather than fear the rapid pace of advance in technology. So the big question is, and if, if you attended my talk last year, these are the only slides that you might recognize from last year. There's one other later on. But the question is, can that happen in Africa? And the answer is, it did. In 2011, this is what a typical digital store looked like in Nairobi. This is where you went to get your CDs. Remember those I mentioned earlier? I'll explain it for those who don't remember it. Uh, you also went to get your cell phones and cell phone accessories. And also, if your cell phone was network, un uh, network locked to one network, these stores would unlock it for you, which technically is illegal, but no one's going to arrest you for it. What happened behind the store, I'm not going to mention, though. However, in 2011, there was already a revolution underway in Kenya. It had started in 2009. It was called M-Pesa. By 2015, this is what M-Pesa was doing. You could buy any goods or services in Kenya using M-Pesa, and that year they evolved to cover all forms of ticketing as well. In the last couple of years, they've moved to um, salary payments via M-Pesa as well. And that's transformed the Kenya economy. 75% of adult Kenyans have M-Pesa. Before uh, 2009, fewer than 10% of the population had any kind of financial instrument. That is disruption on a massive scale. It's on an economy-wide scale. What Netflix did to an industry, M-Pesa did to an entire um, economy. So the big question that then emerges is what can Africa teach the Western tech giants? What can it teach us? What can it teach broadcasting? I again had the good fortune to meet uh, one of the world's great CEOs, Satya, Satya Nadella, when he came to Nairobi a couple of years ago. And the key questions I was asking him was, of course, why was he in Africa? Why was he in Kenya? He'd come there for uh, the launch of uh, Windows 10, which at the time was launched around the world in nine major cities, including Nairobi. And he chose Nairobi as the one where he wanted to personally be present because he felt that's actually the, the true cutting edge. Not the technology of Kenya, but how solutions were being adapted for the continent of Africa. And this is the fundamental message. If you can solve um, problems for Africa, you solve fundamental problems for the world. And if they could build products that would meet the needs of Africa, it would also uh, mean that they have products that can meet the needs of anyone anywhere in the world. And this is the incentive for organizations like Microsoft. What Africa can teach us is, um, who are the next couple of billion users? You can't learn that in India and China because they're already so advanced. Yes, a high proportion of India lives in poverty, but a massive proportion is a connected digital um, economy. So he wants to be able to serve billions more. He's not satisfied with just having a billion uh, customers. But what Satya has done for Microsoft that no previous CEO has done is he's given the company soul. Until he came along, they were the uh, enemy number one for any software programmer who wasn't working for uh, Microsoft, for any developer, for any geek. They saw Microsoft as the enemy. Since he came along, he's injected soul into the organization. They've become open source proponents, much to the shock of the world, and they've become a totally different organization. Suddenly, people love to love them, 
and Microsoft, rather than Apple, became the world's first trillion-dollar uh, company. And it was on this basis that they, he believes in empowering people and organizations rather than punishing people, which was the previous model. This is a fundamental lesson for any business, that technology is a tool, and it's the ingenuity of people and understanding how people use technology that is going to enable you to achieve uh, your mission. You cannot stop learning and advancing. He believes that part of the, his success at Microsoft is that he listens, and it's absolutely true. I've rarely met a CEO who was more interested in what I had to say than what I wanted to ask him. Mostly they just want to talk, but this guy um, actually listens. And by listening, uh, you then are able to change business models based on what people are telling you and what people need. And then, I think this is probably the most important of his messages. You have to keep pushing yourself. You can't be comfortable. If you're comfortable, you're not going to challenge yourself. He says, if you're not um, uh, staring into the unknown and taking on the unknown, you're going to become irrelevant. And that's exactly what's happened to a lot of old-style uh, broadcasters. They've become irrelevant. You have to push yourself. And then on top of all of that comes artificial intelligence. This slide I showed last year, AI startups, December 2017. What I showed at the time was the increase in startups from the previous year to 2017. There, was, there were 2,029 AI startups getting funding from uh, venture capital uh, funds who were injecting a total of $27 billion in funding into these organizations. Every category of AI you can imagine, and many of them relevant to uh, uh, broadcasting. As you can see at the bottom on the um, left-hand side, bottom corner is virtual assistants, and on the uh, right-hand side is speech-to-speech -speech, uh, speech uh, um, AI. All of these relate to the broadcasting environment. Look what happened in just one year. 2,365 startups getting 40, getting $48 billion in funding. The amount of funding in one year almost doubled. So you can imagine that kind of investment going into startups who are at the cutting edge of what artificial intelligence can do is going to change the world. It already is without many of us realizing. Mapping that we get today, Waze, Google Maps, and the like, are using artificial intelligence. So how many of you have used Waze or Google Maps in the last week? So half the audience have used um, one category of artificial intelligence tool in the past week. All of you watching Netflix, you're actually using artificial intelligence as well. And you can go on and on with categories of AI that all of you um, are using. So the question is, what about South African uh, businesses? Are they using AI? Yes, insurance is beginning to use AI in a big way to uh, detect fraud in particular. Some of the startups, though, are moving into actually um, credit scoring people and risk analyzing them on the fly, and they can issue um, insurance within minutes, whereas previously it would take days or weeks to get into insurance. So let's see what has changed from 2018 to 2019 in AI uptake in South Africa. This is what our research showed uh, last year. 13% of South African enterprises were using AI. 
And just yesterday, we released the findings of our latest research pro uh, project on emerging technologies. It looks at the fourth industrial revolution and the underlying technologies of what's supposed to make up the fourth industrial revolution. And this, the next couple of slides, it's the first time they're being shown. So outside of Worldwide Works, no one has seen um, these next pie charts. To what extent has AI grown in the South African enterprise from 2018 to 2019? Not at all. Exactly the same proportion as last year. What has really happened can be seen when we ask companies, do you intend to use AI in the next uh, 12 to 24 uh, months? Last year, you can't see clearly, but 63% said that they plan to use AI in the next 12 to 24 months. Any guesses what they said this year? Plans to use AI to the nearest 10%. 80? Anyone else? In fact, it dropped down to 23%. There was a massive wake-up call in the past year. There was huge enthusiasm for AI. Everyone was talking up the fourth industrial re uh, revolution. Uh, even the, the president was talking the language of the fourth industrial revolution and artificial intelligence. Everyone rushed in to see how can we use this new thing called artificial intelligence, and they discovered two things. One is that the existing systems were not geared to bringing in AI. They actually have to transform their organizations for AI to really work. The other issue is that there are almost no skills in AI in South Africa. The skills barrier was suddenly a cul-de-sac for the fourth industrial revolution in uh, South Africa. And the inten intention of using it crashed. This was a bit like uh, South African football in the African Cup of Nations, uh, where we start with massive expectations and then reality bites and we all settle back into disappointment again. So we managed to scrape through. AI is scraping through. We still have the 13%, but we're up against Egypt and Mo Salah tomorrow. And uh, that's um, the equivalent of the skills barrier in AI. I'm convinced Mo Salah is actually an AI creation. He's just so good. I'm not a Liverpool fan. Let's just go back to Netflix and look at how they're actually using AI. So as I said, everyone watching Netflix is using AI. The personalization of recommendations is based on AI, but they also use it in their productions of Netflix originals. They use it for location scouting, seeing what will be the most cost-effective locations based on uh, weather, traffic, and cost and availability. Post-production, editing and syncing uses AI. Delivery of movies to viewers and of videos to viewers um, uses AI to predict bandwidth and cache content locally. When you're watching Netflix in South Africa, if it's something that has, anyone has watched before, you're actually having it delivered not from Silicon Valley, but from Kempton Park, because the Terraco data center in Kempton Park is actually the cache for Netflix in the Gauteng um, area. The bottom line of AI is that it's all about data and data that you can use. And that's the problem in South African organizations as well. Their data is not geared or effectively geared to being um, brought into AI tools. 
Let's look at AI um, in broadcasting. There's um, uh, four or five categories that I'm just going to highlight for you very quickly where AI is transforming broadcasting. Firstly, in quality control, to identify and fix system faults on the fly without human intervention. Metadata, using uh, the data available to, to not just um, on your audience, but also on content and who else has viewed that content to associate it with audience needs. Um, editing, it takes over routine tasks of uh, editing um, both sound and video. And then supervision, detecting and predicting issues. This is largely being used in TV broadcasting, but it can be applied to radio as well. And then finally, presenting. The robots actually want your job. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, there actually are attempts to bring robots into broadcasting. So this was um, last year um, on China uh, State TV. They introduced the first artificial intelligence anchor. On the one side is the human, and the other side is the artificial intelligence um, avatar. I leave it up to you to guess which one is the real one. They both look pretty plastic, but that's fairly normal in TV uh, broadcasting. And then uh, just in April this year, uh, Russia introduced its first robot news anchor. And uh, this is not a guy I want to meet in a dark alley. Part of the reason is that they based his design on the, founder, the, 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 the face of the founder of the company that, that built the robot. They claim they've sold about eight of these robots to broadcasters um, around the world. I hope they list them so that I know who to avoid. Um, the thing to understand about robots is that they are not what science fiction claims them to be. And I'll just talk you through some of the robots that I've met over the last few years. Uh, firstly, there's Pepper. And this I might have shown a couple of years ago at uh, Radio Days when I first met uh, Pepper. And uh, Pepper is used in about 14,000 establishments across um, Japan and uh, neighboring countries as a waitron. And most people say, I don't want a robot saving me, I want a human. But I said to Pepper, hello, Pepper. And Pepper said, hello, human. And I was captivated and immediately thought, actually, I far more enjoy talking to Pepper than to some of the surly waitrons that I get to deal with. Um, and then they began rolling out Pepper in financial services. In Japan especially, um, he, she, it is used as a kind of receptionist who does entry interviews with people wanting to buy um, insurance. And Pepper is able to ask questions that a human can't uh, answer because a lot of people are embarrassed to answer some of these questions. Something as simple as your date of birth, people often don't want to tell another human being. They don't want them to know how old they are because no one can actually see. Um, so they would lie to a human, but a robot, it's fine. They'll talk to a robot. So last year, Nedbank brought Pepper to South Africa. Uh, this is the digital ambassador. His real job is to show that Nedbank is um, up on technology, but what they were trying to demonstrate was how they could use Pepper um, in place of a teller for routine, routine inquiries. And if you look closely at his chest, the uh, tablet that he has there, it's actually a menu of a website, uh, but adapted for a robot. So you could either ask Pepper the questions, or you could click or press on the tablet and select the options. You might as well do that on your phone. You don't need a robot for that stuff. And any of the information that Pepper could give you was actually more limited than what you could get on the Net Netbank app 
on your phone. So if a robot isn't better than an app, then there's no point spending 750,000 rand bringing it into the country and adapting it. But to be fair to Nedbank, that wasn't the real purpose. The real purpose was more symbolic. The robot that's made probably more noise than Pepper lately is, anyone know her? Anyone met her? Her name is Sophia. Sophia is famous because she's the first robot ever to be given citizenship of a country. Saudi Arabia gave her citizenship um, a year ago. So a robot has more rights than a real woman in uh, Saudi Arabia. This is what Sophia looks like from the back. What they're trying to do with her is emphasize the fact that she's not human, because that's a pretty creepy face, to be quite honest. So they don't want people to have that sense of creepiness. There's a concept called uncanny valley, which basically says that if a robot is too close uh, to being human, but not quite human, it's going to turn off people significantly because of that creepy um, effect. And that's why they expose her uh, brain uh, to the world. Um, they invited me to put questions to her. I had to submit them in advance. They gave me sample questions I could have asked. Every one of the sample questions I could have uh, Googled and got an answer. So I asked some more complicated questions, and the next day they came back and said they decided not to allow me to ask Sophia any questions. So, um, to my mind, Sophia and many of these other robots are a great con job. They basically spit out what you feed into them. They're not going to take over from humans. And the reason for that is that the real robot, in fact, doesn't have a face. The real robot looks like this. The robots that are transforming manufacturing around the world are actually uh, automate, aut automated arms with artificial intelligence driving um, their behavior. They operating everywhere from production lines to uh, deep mining and other dangerous areas as well. This is not your competitor. Your real competitor, I'd like to introduce you to now. Alexa, play TuneIn Radio. Getting the last tune-in station you listen to, HD Radio, Rock and Roll. Is for what he never knew. Now man's reign is through, but through... Alexa, stop. That's your real competitor. Not just her, but Google Home and all the other equivalent kinds of smart assistant uh, technology. When you can simply say to a machine what you want to listen to, you don't really need presenters to curate that information anymore. So the presenters have to become something new. They have to become really good at what they do. I know there's some good presenters um, in the room here, but you're going to have to challenge yourself. You're going to have to develop even more personality than you do today, because that's what will differentiate the radio presenter from the robot or the AI uh, presenter. The truth is, anyone can hire artificial intelligence. This is Smart FM, which claims to be the first artificial intelligence for FM uh, transmitters. It does pretty much what I spoke about earlier in terms of the impact of AI 
on broadcasting or how it's being used. It's intended to enhance the signal for fault detection, for monitoring, um, and the like. And you can hire Smart FM. It's not a competitor to you, it's actually a service provided to you. The next slide I'm going to show you, I showed last year um, as well, and it kind of shows you what is going to be possible in uh, broadcasting in the future. In the same way you can hire Smart FM, services like Amazon Web Services is going to make almost any technology available to anyone to integrate in their business. And these are categories of technology across the top. Uh, you can see it says Marketplace, um, and it has, uh, for example, business um, intelligence, security, networking, uh, databases, etc. Down this side, you have um, categories of application like data backups, integrated app deployments, identity uh, management, and the like. And within that matrix of services, you in the future will be able to download your startup business, your broadcaster. You'll be able to mix and match the ingredients of the future that you want to present uh, to the world. And you'll be able to use AI tools as well as AI bots and presenters to pretend to be human beings that are presenting to the world. But people will know if there is no soul in that business. People will feel if there is no passion for uh, the audience. You still have to make your audience feel like you're presenting a wonderful experience to them. So technology is not going to take over from the human being, but technology is going to dramatically enhance the ability of the human being uh, to deliver. And that's the secret of the media future. Technology is your ally. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to Arthur. Are there any questions from the floor? We've got two or three minutes for questions. Anyone want to ask Alexa anything? <laughs> We're all good. Gavin. Hi, Arthur. Um, um, it's Gavin Mayring. I just wanted to, um, when you talk around, okay, Alexa's <coughs> it's just giving you a random station that you listened to last, which I'm very impressed with your choice, or I'm not really <laughs> sure how to say that, but... Um, could it go to, to specifics, like for instance, um, where you don't get an AI presenter, you actually get a real presenter you like, for instance. So if the podcasts were um, transferred immediately after they were on air, like for instance a link or a particular bit of segment or information, um, would you be able to do then segment it within the actual radio station itself? Very much so. Um, any, any level of segmentation is possible. In fact, that's exactly what AI promises, is, is that you, you can fine-tune your uh, packaging to the extent that based on the, uh, the quarter hour of the day and the weather of the day, you could actually adapt uh, what you're delivering uh, to the audience. And the same way La Liga, for example, uses weather and uh, traffic data to determine uh, what, exactly what date and time they should uh, stage a match when they're doing their fixture planning, exactly the same kind of thinking can go into programming a radio station. If, if uh, there's going to be load shedding, for example, you can actually change the tone of uh, the music based on what the emotions will be of uh, the, the, or what you believe the emotions will be of people. In fact, artificial intelligence can even measure 
um, emotional reactions of people via social media and feed that in to your programming. So take a Twitter feed. There's a company called Crimson Hexagon that has been collecting data um, from social media networks since 2009. Every single post that has ever appeared since 2009 is available on their system to analyze. And they can tell you the emotional state of a city, of a country, at any given time over the last uh, 10 years. For example, among many other things that they can tell you. So you link that with, uh, to artificial intelligence, to one of these programming systems, and emotion can actually guide your broadcasting. We'll take one last question, Norma. Um, hi, my name is Norma. Um, so as you said um, just now, um, it can turn into someone who can analyze, or something that can analyze data in terms of social media, your listenership. So there are other jobs, of course, um, other than presenting. There's still music, music compiling. There's still um, producers. Do you think maybe in the next 10 years that IAA will now take over those jobs as well, like music compiling, um, content producing, things like that? I believe AI will make those jobs better. People will become far better at their jobs. The same way that AI is enhancing referees in La Liga, I believe AI will enhance uh, programmers. Uh, you're still going to need a programmer who understands how to use AI to enhance the programming. It's not a question of pressing a button and it'll do it. It doesn't work um, that way today, and I don't think it'll work that way 10 years from now. You'll still need a human specialist who understands what it makes possible, and then to get it to do that. I think there's some radio programmers in the room that would say, at least if you have artificial intelligence in a radio show, there's some intelligence. If you've listened to some you. breakfast shows in the last few weeks, you may think to yourself, we're intelligence devoid. I Arthur, thank agree. you very, <laughs> thank <laughs> thank you very you. much for your time. Arthur Goldstock is the CEO of Worldwide Works. Thank you. <laughs>